Chapter Thirteen of the Benefactress by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. What the Princess Ludwig thought of her new place, it would be difficult to say. She accepted her position as minister to the comforts of the hitherto comfortless without remark, and entirely as a matter of course. She got up at hours exemplary in their earliness and was about the house rattling a bunch of keys all day long. She was wholly practical, and as destitute of illusions as she was of education, in the ordinary sense. Her knowledge of German literature was hardly more extensive than Letty's, and of other tongues and other literatures she knew and cared nothing. As for illusions, she saw things as they are, and had never at any period of her life possessed enthusiasms nor had she the least taste for hidden meanings and symbols. Metterlink, if she had heard of him, would have been dismissed by her with an easy smile. Anna's whitewash to her was whitewash, a disagreeable but economical wall-covering. She knew and approved of it as cheap. How could she dream that it was all so symbolic? She never dreamed at all, either sleeping or waking. If by some chance she had fallen into musings, she would have mused blood and iron, the superiority of the German nation, cookery in its three forms, feiner, burgerlicher, and hausmannskost, in all which forms she was pre-eminent in skill. She would have mused, that is, on facts, plain and undisputed. If she had had children, she would have made an excellent mother. As it was, she made excellent cakes, also a form of activity to be commended. She was a Dettingen before marriage, and the Dettingens are one of the oldest Prussian families, and have produced more first-rate soldiers and statesmen and a larger number of mothers of great men than any other family in that part. The Penheims and Dettingens had intermarried continually, and it was to his mother's Dettingen blood that the first Penheim owed the energy that procured him his elevation. Princess Ludwig was a good example of the best type of female Dettingen. Like many other illiterates, she prided herself particularly on her sturdy common sense. Regarding this quality, which she possessed, as more precious than others which she did not possess, she was not likely to sympathise much either with Anna's plan for making people happy, or with those who were willing to be made happy in such a way. A sensible woman, she thought, will always find work, and need not look far for a home. She herself had been handicapped in the search by her unfortunate title, yet with patience even she had found a haven. Only the lazy and lackadaisical, the morally worthless, that is, would, she was convinced, accept such an offer as Anna's. It was not, however, her business. Her business was to look after Anna's house, and she did it with a zeal and thoroughness that struck terror into the hearts of the maidservants. Trudy's fitful energy was nothing to it. Trudy had introduced workmen and chaos. The princess— with a rapidity and skill little short of amazing to any one unacquainted with the capabilities of the well-trained German Hausfrau, cleared out the workmen and reduced the chaos to order. Within three weeks the house was ready, and Anna, palpitating, saw the moment approaching when the first batch of unhappy ones might be received. Manska's time was entirely taken up writing letters of inquiry concerning the applicants, and it was surprising in what huge batches they had to be weeded out. Of fifty applications received in one day, three or four, after due inquiry, would alone remain for further consideration, and of these three or four, 
after yet closer inquiry, sometimes not one would be left. At first Anna asked the princess's advice as well as Manska's, and it was when she was present at the consultations that the heap into which the letters of the unworthy were gathered was biggest. All those ladies belonging to the burgerliche, or middle classes, were in her eyes wholly unworthy. If Anna had proposed to take washerwomen into her home, and required the princess's help in brightening their lives, it would have been given in the full measure, pressed down and running over, that befits a Christian gentlewoman. But for the burgerlichen, those belonging to the class more immediately below her own, the princess's feeling was only Christian, so long as they kept a great way off. There was so much good sense in the objections she made, that Anna, who did her best to keep an open mind and listen attentively to advice, was forced to agree with her, and added letters to the ever-increasing heap of the rejected, which she might otherwise have reserved for riper consideration. After two or three days, however, it became clear to her that if she continued to consult the princess, no one would be accepted at all, for Manska's respect for that lady was so profound that he was invariably of her opinion. She did not, therefore, invite her again to assist at the interviews. Still, all she had said, and the knowledge that she must know her own countrywoman fairly thoroughly, made Anna prudent, and so it came about that the first arrivals were to be only three in number, chosen without reference to the princess, and one of them was a burgerlich. "'We can meanwhile proceed with our inquiries about the remaining nine, said Manske, "'and the gracious miss will always be gaining experience.' She trod on air during the days preceding the arrival of the chosen. To say that she was blissful would be but an inadequate description of her state of mind. The weather was beautiful, and it increased her happiness tenfold to know that their new life was to begin in sunshine. She had never a doubt as to their delight in the sun-checkered forest, in the freshness of the glittering sea, in the peacefulness of the quiet country life, so quiet that the week seemed to be all Sundays. Were not these things sufficient for herself? Did she ever tire of those long pine vistas, with a narrow strip of clearest blue between the gently waving tree-tops? The dreamy murmur of the forest gave her an exquisite pleasure to see the bloom on the pink and grey trunks of the pines, and the sun on the moss and lichen beneath, was so deep a satisfaction to her soul, that the thought that others who had been knocked about by life would not feel it too, would not enter with profoundest thankfulness into this other world of peace, never struck her at all. When these poor tired women, freed at last from every care and every anxiety, had refreshed themselves with the music and fragrance of the forest, there was the garden across the road to enjoy, with the marsh already strewn with king-cups on the other side of the hedge already turning green, and the sea with the fishing-smacks passing up and down, and the silver gleam of gulls-wings circling round the orange sails, and eagles floating high up aloft, specks in the infinite blue. And then there were the drives along the coast towards the north, where the wholesome wind blew fresher than in the woods, and quiet evenings in the roomy house, where all that was asked of them was that they should be happy. "'It's a lovely plan, isn't it, Letty?' she said joyously, the evening before they were to arrive, as she stood with her arm round Letty's shoulder at the bottom of the garden, where they had both been watching the sails of the fishing-smacks during those short sunset moments, when they looked like the bright wings of spirits moving over the face of the placid waters. "'I should rather think it was,' 
replied Letty, who was profoundly interested. They got up at sunrise the next morning, and went out into the forest in search of hepaticas and wildflowers with which to decorate the three bedrooms. These bedrooms were the largest and pleasantest in the house. Anna had given up her own because she thought the windows particularly pleasing, and had gone into a little one in the fervour of her desire to lavish all that was best on her new friends. The rooms were furnished with special care, an immense amount of thought having been bestowed on the colour of the curtains, the pattern of the porcelain, and the books filling the shelves above each writing-table. The colours and patterns were the nearest approach Berlin could produce to Anna's own favourite colours and patterns. She wasted half her time, when the rooms were ready, sitting in them, and picturing what her own delight would have been if she, like the poor ladies for whom they were intended, had come straight out of a cold, unkind world into such pretty havens. The choice of books had been a great difficulty, and there had been much correspondence on the subject with Berlin before a selection had been made. Books there must be, for no room she thought was habitable without them, and she had tried to imagine what manner of literature would most appeal to her unhappy ones. It was to be presumed that their ages were such as to exclude frivolity, therefore she bought very few novels. She thought Dickens, translated into German, would be a safe choice also Schlegel's Shakespeare for loftier moments. The German classics were represented by Goethe in one room, Schiller in another, and Heine in the third. In each room there was also a German-English dictionary for the facilitation of intercourse. Finally, she asked the princess to recommend something they would be sure to like, and she recommended cookery books. "'But they are not going to cook,' said Anna, surprised. "'Es ist egal,' It's always interesting to read good recipes. No other reading affords me the same pleasure. But only when you want something new cooked. No, no, at all times, insisted the princess. Anna could not quite believe that such a taste was general, but in case one of the three should share it, she put a cookery book in one bookcase. In the other two, severally to balance it, she slipped in at the last moment a volume of Metalink, to which at that period she was greatly attached and Matthew Arnold's poems, to which also at that period she was greatly attached. The princess went about with pursed lips while these preparations were in progress, and when, at sunrise on the last morning, she was awakened by stealthy footsteps and smothered laughter on the landing outside her room, and, opening her door an inch and peering out as in duty-bound, in case the sounds should be emanating from some unaccountably mirthful maid-servant, she saw Anna and Letty creeping downstairs with their hats on and baskets in their hands. She guessed what they were going to do, and got back into bed with lips more pursed than ever. Did she not know who had been chosen, and that one of the three was a burgerlicher? About eight o'clock, when the two girls were coming out of the forest with their baskets full and their faces happy, Axel Lohm was riding thoughtfully past, having just settled an unpleasant business at Kleinwalde. Delvig had sent him an urgent message in the small hours. There had been a brawl among the labourers about a woman, and a man had been stabbed. Axel had ordered the aggressor to be locked up in the little room that served as a temporary prison, till he could be handed over to the Stralsund authorities. His wife, a girl of twenty, was ill, and she and her three small children depended entirely on the man's earnings. The victim appeared to be dying, and the man would certainly be punished. What, then, thought Axel, was to become of the wife and the children? 
Frau Delwig had told him she sent soup every day at dinner-time, but soup once a day would neither comfort them nor make them fat. Besides, he had a notion that the soup of Frau Delwig's charity was very thin. He was riding, dejectedly enough, down the road on his way home, looking straight before him, his mouth a mere grim line, thinking how grievous it was that the consequences of sin should fall with their most terrific weight nearly always on the innocent, on the helpless women-folk and the weak little children, when Anna and Letty appeared, talking and laughing, on the edge of the forest. Letty, we know, had not been kindly treated by nature, but even she was a pleasing object in her harmless morning cheerfulness after the faces he had just seen, and Anna's beauty, made radiant by happiness and contentment, startled him. He had a momentary twinge, gone almost before he had realised it, a sudden clear conception of his great loneliness. The satisfaction he strove to extract from improving his estate for the benefit of his brother Gustav appeared to him at that moment to bear a singular resemblance, in its thinness, to Frau Dalvig's charitable soup. He got off his horse to speak to her, and rested his eyes, tired by looking at the hideous passions on the brawler's face, on hers. "'Today is the important day, is it not?' he asked, glancing from her flower-like face to the flowers. "'The first three come this afternoon.' "'So Manska told me. You're very happy, I can see.' he said, smiling. "'I never was so happy before.' "'Your uncle was a wise man. He told me he was going to leave you Kleinwalder, because he felt sure you would be happy, leading the simple life here. Did he talk about me to you?' "'After his last visit to England he talked about you all the time.' "'Oh,' said Anna, looking at him thoughtfully. Uncle Joachim, she remembered perfectly, had urged two things. The leading of the better life— and the marrying of a good German gentleman. A faint flush came into her face and faded again. She had suddenly become aware that Axel was the good German gentleman he had meant. Well, the wisest uncle was subject to errors of judgment. "'I trust those women will not worry you too much,' he said, thinking how immense would be the pity if those happy eyes ever lost their joyousness. "'Worry me?' Poor things, they won't have any energy of any sort left after all they have gone through. I never read such pitiful letters. Well, I don't know, said Axel doubtfully. Manska says one of them is a Treumann. It's a family distinguished by its size and its disagreeableness. Oh, but she only married a Treumann and isn't one herself. But a woman generally adopts the peculiarities of the family she marries into, especially if they are unpleasant. "'But she has been a widow for years, and is so poor, and is so crushed.' "'I never yet heard of a permanently crushed Treumann,' said Axel, shaking his head. "'You are trying to make me uneasy,' said Anna, a slight touch of impatience in her voice. She was singularly sensitive about her chosen ones, sensitive in the way mothers are about a child that is deformed. "'No, no,' he said quickly. "'I only wish to warn you. You may be disappointed. It is just possible.' He could not bear to think of her as disappointed. "'Pray, do you know anything against the other two? she asked with some defiance. "'One of them is a Baroness Elmreich, and the other is a Fräulein Kuhraber.' Axel looked amused. "'I never heard of Fräulein Kuhraber,' he said. "'What does Princess Ludwig say to her coming?' "'Nothing at all. What should she say?' It was Fräulein Kuhraber's coming that had more particularly occasioned the pursing of the princess's lips.' 
"'I know some Elmreichs,' said Axel. "'A few of them are respectable, but one branch at least of the family is completely demoralized. A Baron Elmreich shot himself last year because he had been caught cheating at cards, and one of his sisters—oh, well, some of them are harmless, I believe.' "'Thank you.' "'You are angry with me?' "'Very.' "'And why?' "'You want to prejudice me against the poor things. They can't help what distant relations do. They will get away from them in my house, at least, and have peace.' "'Miss Letty, is your aunt often—what is the word—so fractious?' "'Oh, I don't know,' said Letty, who found it dull waiting in silence while other people talked. "'It's breakfast-time, you know, and people can't stand much just about then.' "'Oh, youthful philosopher!' exclaimed Axel, so young and of the female sex, and yet to have pierced to the very root of human weakness. "'Stuff!' said Letty, offended. "'What, are you going to be angry too? Then let me get on my horse and go.' "'It's the best thing you can do,' said Letty, always frank, but doubly so when she was hungry. "'Shall you come and see us soon?' Anna asked, gathering up her skirts in her one free hand, preparatory to crossing the muddy road. "'But you're angry with me.' She looked up and laughed. "'Not now,' she said. "'I've finished. Do you think I'm going to be angry long this pleasant April morning?' "'I smell the coffee,' observed Letty, sniffing. "'Then I will come to-morrow, if I may,' said Axel, "'and make the acquaintance of Frau von Treumann and Baroness Elmreich.' "'And Fräulein Kurauber,' said Anna, with emphasis. She thought she saw the same tendency in him that was so manifest in the princess a tendency to ignore the very existence of any one called Kurauber. "'And Fräulein Kurauber,' repeated Axel gravely. "'They've burnt the toast again,' said Letty. "'I can hear them scraping off the black.' "'I wish you good luck, then,' said Axel, taking off his hat. "'With all my heart, I wish you good luck, and that these ladies may very soon be as happy as you are yourself.' "'That's nice,' said Anna, approvingly. "'So much—' much nicer than the other things you have been saying and she nodded to him all smiles as she crossed over to the house and he rode away end of chapter thirteen